So we're in a time of Advent. We're in a time of Advent, uh, the weeks before Christmas. And we lit the second candle on the Advent wreath this morning, the candle of love. And as Easter and Lent are a time of letting go, Advent and Christmas are a time of picking up, a, a time of new things being born. And so this morning we are considering how do we pick up love? How do we take on love? How do we take on the love that is being born in the world around us? Would you stand and recite with me the Shema before we consider our scripture passage for today? Let's recite it together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to remain standing because I'm going to ask you to recite with me the scripture passage. And our scripture today is from the lectionary as we get closer and closer to Christmas. We're considering the letters in the New Testament that are a part of the lectionary before Christmas. So it's Philippians. We're in the first chapter of Philippians today. And a couple of things I want you to know about Philippians. The first thing I want you to know is that Paul loved the Philippians. In fact, some say that this letter is evidence that they were his favorites. And the second thing I want you to know is that the Philippians have sent Paul a gift. They sent him money while he was in prison. And so it is appropriate that he would begin this letter with thank you, which is exactly what he does. So we're going to start in chapter 1 of Philippians verse 3. Let's read it together. I thank my God every time I think of you. I always pray with joy whenever I pray for you all because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Of this I'm convinced. The one who began a good work in you will thoroughly complete it by the day of King Jesus. It's right for me to think this way about all of you. You have me in your hearts here in prison as I am working to defend and bolster up the gospel. You are my partners in grace, all of you. Yes, God can bear witness how much I'm longing for all of you with the deep love of King Jesus. And this is what I'm praying, that your love may overflow still more and more in knowledge and in all astute wisdom then you will be able to tell the difference between good and evil and to be sincere and faultless on the day of the Messiah, filled to overflowing with the fruit of right living, fruit that comes through King Jesus to God's glory and praise. Amen. You can have a seat. I was surprised to learn this week that George H.W. Bush didn't write a memoir when he left office. I didn't remember that. But instead, many said because President Bush was so humble, he released and he published the letters that he had written to those that he worked with and to his family. It seems to have been a really good idea in retrospect because in President Bush's letters, we were given a clear picture of what he thought what he thought about his family, and what he thought about the work of the presidency. Philippians is our opportunity to eavesdrop on Paul. And what's unique about our passage this morning is that the letter that he writes to the Philippians begins with a prayer. 
So what we get in the first chapter of Philippians is a really clear picture of Paul's prayer life. And I think that that's really deep stuff to get a picture of what someone is praying about. In the last few years, I've found myself most often praying the prayer or a version of the prayer help. Remember, Anne Lamott writes that there are three great prayers that we pray. One is help, one is thanks, and one is wow. Well, Paul prays thanks as he begins this letter to the Philippians. And he prays this prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippians. In verse 3, he even says, I thank God every time I think of you. I thank God every time I remember you. That's big. Every time. When I was in college, someone that I was dating before Keith referenced this very verse in a card that he gave me, verse 3 in 1 Philippians chapter 1, and I remember thinking, oh, that's too soon, too soon. (laughs) You don't know me that well (laughs) to be thankful for me every time you think of me. At the same time, I thought, this might be a good time to end it. Because I don't think it's going to get any better than this for me. If you get to know me, you're not going to be that smitten with me. The thing is, I didn't keep reading Philippians. I only read verse 3 of the first chapter. And if I had kept reading Philippians, I would see that being smitten is not the issue that Paul has with the people that he's writing to. He's not writing a prayer of thanksgiving just because Philippi is nice. Philippi sat on a major trade route in the ancient world. I read this week that the ruins there are still pretty good. Those are pictures of the ruins in Philippi. If you go, you can still get a pretty clear picture of what that city was like. It was established as a Roman colony where veteran soldiers could go and retire, could go and settle. There was no synagogue in Philippi which is where Paul usually went to preach when he entered a city or a town. He would go to the synagogue and teach. N.T. Wright wrote a biography of Paul, and he says that the people in Philippi were able to identify Paul as a Jew because they knew just enough about Jews to be prejudiced. And sure enough, we know that Paul is thrown in jail in Philippi. This may be where Paul gets his very first taste of prison, some scholars say. And it is here that Paul makes this charge against the officials of the city. He says, you people can't throw me in jail because I'm a Roman citizen. And yet he still has to make a public apology and leave town. So he doesn't love Philippi because he's smitten with Philippi. He doesn't love Philippi because he had an ideal trip there. I was in Dallas earlier this week on a college campus tour, and our tour guide was telling us how much he loved San Antonio because of the great food and the river walk and the Texas history. He was about 20 years old, and he had been to San Antonio one time, and when he had been here, we'd served him well. He'd had a great trip. Well, that's not Paul's experience. Philippi didn't show him a good time. This love that Paul has for the Philippians is more than just they made him feel good. Well, it is true that we know that the Philippians sent him money. 
So maybe that's it. Maybe he is so fond of them because of their generosity. Paul is writing to the Philippians from prison, uh, from an imperial city. And so there are a couple of guesses of where he's imprisoned. Some say it's in Rome and others say it's Ephesus. And prison in the first century meant that you were held captive in rather dismal conditions. And you weren't fed by the officials of the prison. And in, in fact, you had to rely on people that you knew outside of the jail in the community to come and help you to come and bring you food and supplies. And so the Philippians have done this. They have sent money to Paul by way of somebody from their, from their town, from their city. And, and so they don't live in the community where Paul is imprisoned. They live in another country. And they've undertaken this dangerous journey to travel and essentially to break into prison to help him out. They've taken a risk. They've made a sacrifice to help him, to show up for him. This, I believe, is the key to Christian relationship. That we show up for each other. That we do things on behalf of one another, on behalf of those that we're in relationship with that don't necessarily benefit us personally. I do think that this is how you can spot a Christian family. A family that really wants to live out the faith. A family that really wants to live out the faith is a family that shows up for one another. People in, the, in a Christian family do things for each other that don't mean personal gain for themselves, but in fact could mean a loss, a personal loss. When my youngest child was an infant, he was only months old, one morning Keith and I frantically sped to the nearest hospital with our hazard lights on, holding the baby in the front seat because he wasn't breathing well. His lips were turning purple. He'd aspirated, he'd inhaled food, and the hospital helped us, and he was better in just a few days and healthy. But that morning I was panicked. I was panicked and I went to the hospital with my pajamas on. So on my way to the hospital, I started calling my family to tell them where we were going. And I called my sister who was in her car and she quickly pulled into Target to get me something to wear on her way to meet me at the hospital. Target was having problems with their credit card reader that morning, to which my sister said to the cashier, I am walking out of here with these clothes. Do you want to help me walk out of here or not? When I think about that morning, I think, man, my sister took a risk. She took a risk on my behalf. She showed up for me. In fact, all my people did. All my people did in their own way. They sacrificed their time or their energy on that day and in the days that followed to help me up, to help me out. Barbara Brown Taylor was interviewed in a podcast uh, this last week about how she is caring for her sister who is dying of cancer right now. She said that what she's learning about caring for her sister is that she's learning that love doesn't, love can't always fix. But instead what love does is bear witness. Love most powerfully bears witness to what the person that you love is going through. The thing, that, the thing about the relationship that Paul has with Philippi, 
is that they've shown up for one another. Paul has sacrificed for them, and they have sacrificed for Paul. In verse 7, he writes these words, You have me in your heart. But some translations translate those very words, I have you in my heart. It doesn't matter because they're both true. Paul has the Philippians in his heart, and the Philippians have him in their heart. There's like this reciprocal relationship that's in place of showing up for one another, of sacrificing for each other. I'm reading Brene Brown's new book on leadership right now. And in it, she talks about the concept of trust in a relationship in a really clear way. What she says about trust is that we tend to think that trust comes in a relationship. It's the result of a really grand gesture, somebody doing something really spectacular, highly visible, or a heroic deed, and then trust comes. But that's not necessarily the case. More often what happens is that trust is built with small interactions of genuine concern, of genuine care and connection. Brene Brown says it's like a jar full of marbles. And she uses this jar full of marbles because her uh, daughter had a teacher who had a jar full of marbles sitting on their desk. And every time the class did something good, the teacher would add a marble to a jar. And so, good decision, marble went in the jar. Bad decision, marble came out of the jar for the teacher. Brown says that we have a marble jar in every relationship that we're in. So, when I have a friend who texts me the words, you okay? A marble goes in the jar. When I have a friend who remembers my parents' names, and asks me how my parents are doing or greets them by their name in front of me. A marble goes in the jar. When I have a friend who sees that I'm celebrating something on Instagram and asks me about it. Marble in the jar. Or someone who's praying for me. Clink. Another marble in the jar. This dynamic of a jar full of marbles is true in many relationships. It's true in friendships, it's true in family, it's true in marriages. That trust is built with the smallest of moments. It's earned layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of showing up for one another, of sacrificing for each other, of paying attention in joy and paying attention in sorrow, this genuine concern and care. In an organization, say, a church. Trust is built by the relationships that you have with the people in the organization, by the relationships that you have with one another. Otherwise, a church just becomes nothing more than entertainment. And from my experience, entertaining someone doesn't necessarily guarantee a marble in the jar. I think the kind of love that Paul has with the Philippians is largely built on this kind of marble jar trust, because he calls what he has with them a partnership. Did you notice that? He says we have a partnership in the gospel, or we are partners in grace. This partnership is the source of Paul's gratitude. It's the source of his thanksgiving, and it's the foundation for the love that he has for them. 
this is what I learned this week. What I learned this week is partnership is the model for relationship for God's people. Great love is built. Great love is built. It's built layer upon layer upon layer. And there's potential in this kind of love. There's a hope for the future. Kingdom of God potential is seen in a partnership. So I guess the advice that I have for you this morning is get yourself a partnership. You may already have one. And if you do, then celebrate it. Partnerships are those relationships that we have where we say we're in this together. It's the kind of love, it's the kind of relationship that we have with our children or with our spouse. It's the kind of love that knows whatever we face, we face it together. And whatever happens, whatever happens, God can use it for good. A partnership is what we intend to do around here in this church. It's a part of our very mission statement. To partner with God, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Partnership. Paul knows the value of partnering with other Christians. The love that he has for the Philippians, is, it's overflowing, and that comes out in his writing. And the potential that he sees in them uh, is also so hopeful that it just spills out in his letter. He writes, Of this I'm convinced. The one who has begun a good work in you will thoroughly complete it. It's as if Paul is looking at a jar full of marbles, and he says the jar full of marbles is evidence. It's evidence that the jar will one day be filled to the brim, will one day be filled to overflowing, because not only do you and I have a tight bond, but also God is at work, and God will complete the work. So, so we see not only what is there, in a partnership, but we also see what is to come. We're hopeful about what God will do. People do this. People do this in loving relationships. They live out this kind of partnering love. I see it when grandparents take on caring for grandchildren or when sons sit at their father's hospital beds or when friends walk with friends through a time of grief. It's the kind of love that says, I'm here right now with you, and I also see more. I'm hopeful for what God has for you. When I read the words and the stories of the Bible, I just hear the clinking of marbles. I hear the clinking of marbles in my jar, that there is evidence. There's evidence that God will bring all things together for good encouraging me to love the people who are in my life better, more fully, with greater risk, because God has good things for them, and God has good things for me in that sacrificial love as well. And when I listen to those words of the Magnificat, the words that we read together this morning, Mary's song in Luke, I hear that Mary knows this truth as well. She knows this truth so well that it spills out of her in song during what must have been 
for Mary, for a teenage girl, a really uncertain time. Mary sings to God, Lord, you have done great things. You have done powerful things. And so I'm with you. And I'm with this child. Because I know that greater things are still to come. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. And we believe that you are working all things together for good. We see the evidence of this truth. The truth of Bethlehem is a truth that feeds us, that partnering love is good for us. So, Lord, this morning, would you enable us to give ourselves completely to your work and to your people? Would you show us one person? Would you show us each one person or one place where we could give more or commit more? Lord, we seek wise love. It's the kind of love that overflows with life. So send your Holy Spirit that we might meet the demands of love in our day-to-day life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.